Well, before we come to the table, we want to hear God's word read to us and we want to have it preached to us. And so if you would rise tonight, we will look in Psalm 27. Let us rise and hear God's word together. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God, as we come before you in the midst of this, your word, would you speak for your servants are listening. And all for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 27, it's, a, it's often quoted. It's a well-known psalm, but I think when we consider its context, it's actually quite a challenging psalm. Many have tried to split it up and say it's actually two psalms because you, you read it and you read these first six verses and it, it seems as though everything is conviction, assurance. And then you keep going and it seems as though there's great stress and calamity in front of him. How can one be so confident and yet so afraid? How is it possible to have what might be said as two opposite or opposing forces? So which one is it? Are we to be confident or are we to be afraid? Which one is David? I don't know if we can answer that for sure. And I'm not quite certain that's the point of what David is saying here in Psalm 27. This idea of having confidence and yet experiencing great stress, or as uh, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis would say, there's a, a calm of faith and a crisis of faith at the same time. How do we imagine and understand this? Well, it's David's pursuit of security, isn't it? And that's not something altogether 
unique. That's not something that you and I have, well, I'm unsure of what that means. What does it mean to want security? What does it mean to want to be safe? We, we live in a world that is overwhelmed with stress of trying to secure ourselves. You, you live in the United States of America. Not just the military as a security, but I'm sure many of you right now, if I just asked whose doors are locked and alarms are set, you would just pull out your phone and you would look and say, oh, nope, we're good. We have fancy door locks, don't we? You can be hundreds of miles away and lock your door. You can be thousands of miles away, and depending on your setup, you can look inside your house. You have a camera that's showing you what's going on. Is it safe to be here? It's this illusion that we have that says, even though I'm not there, everything's still okay. It must be safe because my iPhone tells me it is. David obviously isn't using an iPhone. That's not his understanding of security, but, but they understood this. You see, this psalm was often used of kings right before they would go into battle. They would use this psalm as a, as a measure of security, as a measure of success. If we would do something with it, if we would confess our sin then God would restore us. He would heal us. He would protect us. In fact, during their, what you might call their holy week, their 10 holy days, they would recite this psalm. It was meant to be something of introspective. If I want to consider my life, I want to consider my sin. And if I would confess it, if, if I would rid myself of all of my bad things, then, well, then God would grant me success. I would be secure. Now, whether or not they actually did it for those purposes, that's what historians say. I don't know. But David here is wrestling with an issue of security, isn't it? And so I want to put three questions before us tonight. The first is, who or what is your security? Where is your security? And how do you have security? Look with me in the very beginning of this psalm. David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David's answer, and he's beginning with this question of, well, who or what is my security? And he's saying, I'm secure because of God. God is my security. And he begins with what you might call a confession of faith. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He begins with God. It's vitally important, isn't it? It's that question that we all, Christian or not, have to wrestle with. Who is God? And how you answer that question. What you're willing to do with the answer. What you're willing to submit to. It changes everything. Or maybe we should say it shapes everything. And so David is beginning this issue of, I begin with the Lord. God is my light. God is my salvation. The Lord, that is his covenant name, Yahweh. That, that's what he's starting with. Yahweh is my light. What's going on? What is he saying? You're not overwhelmed when he says that, are you? When he says, the Lord is my light, you're not wondering, well, that's a unique term. I've never heard that before. It's used all over the place, isn't it? Job uses the word light and he, and he links it to heaven. The Psalms are full of light. It, it, it describes God's garments. It describes 
It describes his guidance. It, it describes his beauty. This is the only Old Testament reference, however, that says God is my light. Everything else is a, some kind of description of him, but here it's an identifier. It's not until we get to the New Testament that we understand what is this connection with God and light. John's gospel, he opens it up in his prologue in John chapter 1, and what do we learn about light? It's Jesus. The light of the world has come into the world. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. The New Testament is is pointing with understanding that says light is in connection with Jesus. If you want to know God, you know Jesus. It's why the writer to Hebrews says that if you want to understand God, you look at Jesus. Why? Because he's the exact imprint of God's being, of his nature. And I think that's what David is saying here. God is my light. He's, he's giving us a picture that says this is the power. This is the purpose of God. What does light do? Well, it dispels darkness. If you have little children, they often want what? Nightlight. Why? It's this understanding of security, isn't it? If I can see, then I'll be okay. Light dispels darkness and it overpowers it. And what is he saying? God is my light. He dispels the darkness in my life. He overpowers, you might say, darkness in my life. God is greater than any of the threats I might come against because he is my light. I don't have to fear. Light always, light always defeats darkness. Darkness never wins over true light. And David says, who, what is my security? God is my light. And then he says, he's what? He's my light and my salvation. He's my deliverer. That's something very intimate to David, isn't it? He knows whether immediately in context, if there are enemies right around him, or if there's been past, he knows that God has been that which who delivers his people from the enemies. It's a a phrase that he uses here, and it's a phrase he will use frequently because he knows his God is his deliverer. It's Israel's understanding of God. We were, we were enslaved by Egypt. If it wasn't God who would deliver us, then we would still be in darkness. It's the phrase of God's people over and over and over again, that God is light and he is a deliverer. And it's important to know that because David, the mighty warrior, doesn't point to any of his strategies. He hasn't pointed to any of his battle plans, any of the the courageous men that have fought with him. He recognizes none of that really matters. If God is not the king, if he is not the one who is behind, we stand no chance. We have no hope. And so he says, God is my salvation. And what I appreciate about it is he's saying, God's not just a personal savior. He's a global savior. David is the king, the representative 
of God's people recognizes God doesn't just save David. God saves all of his people. It gives us hope to say we can pray for the lost. We can pray in circumstances and say, God, we need your deliverance. We need your salvation. And that's what he's doing. And you and I find ourselves right here, don't you? Because you recognize if David says, God, you are my salvation, and God doesn't save David, what happens to you and I? We no longer are in the kingdom of God. At this point in time, God has already told David, I am making a covenant with you. You will be on the throne, and my Redeemer will come through your lineage. And so if God fails to deliver David, then he has failed to deliver you and me. And so we take great comfort. It's not just a king's confession, it's yours confession. Is God your light? Is he your deliverer, your salvation? It's a a great comfort, isn't it? That the God who is light and who is a deliverer allows you and I to ask and pray for deliverance. When we engage in hardship, and you look at the context, there's enemies. When there are enemies around, you are invited to come and say, Lord, will you deliver me? What enables such a prayer? Because there was a prayer, very similar, wasn't there? God, if it be your will, deliver me. Let this cup be taken from me. And the answer from heaven was no. Jesus prayed a prayer of deliverance, and God said no, so that you and I might be delivered. That is the hope in your security, that God would turn his face from his son so that he could turn towards you and say, I will deliver you. You can have great hope. He's the stronghold of your life, the refuge, you might say, I think it's fascinating when you look at verse two and three, David gives you a picture of how you are to understand God circumstantially. You might look at verse two and say, well, this is David and he is reflecting on the past. What has God done? How has he delivered? And then you look at verse three and what is he looking at there? Perhaps this is what is coming. There's a future stronghold, a future deliverance. And what you would want to know is that last little phrase in verse three, yet I will be confident. That is the same Hebrew word used in Psalm 25 in which we read, oh my God, in you I trust. You see how confidence and trust go together. You have confidence in the Lord because you can trust him. And because you trust him, you have confidence in him. And this is what David is saying. But before we ask the question, where is that security? I want you to see what happens here. There's a, there's a point in which David is, is asking a worldview question. When things are hard, when things are chaotic, when things are changing, where do you go? What do you do? Who do you look to? What's the meaning of life? And David is beginning with that confession of the Lord and then he's going to tell you how God has done things. But that's, that's vitally important for our world, isn't it? 
because everyone's asking that same question. What is the meaning of life? Where do I go when things are hard? And the world will always answer, well, I don't know. Try this. Try that. I've heard of a new trend. You can look to this cultural prophet. And David is saying, no, if you want to understand God is your security, you have a worldview that says everything flows from him. It's governed by him. And the grand and great news is you can know him. It's not an answer of, I don't know, or I'm unsure of where to look. David is saying, no, you, you can know God and you can know his salvation. You can know him as a deliverer. You can know him as a stronghold. You can know him as light. And that offers us great, great security. But if God is your security, where do you go? What is David saying to us? Where do we go for security? He changes focus, doesn't he? And he doesn't do it accidentally. He does it very intensely. He's talking about enemies around him, and then all of a sudden we get to verse four, and what does he say? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. Imagine the intensity. He's in the midst of chaos. There could be several requests needing to be made. And David says, I actually just have one. Is that how you view your life? When things are that chaotic, what would you need for calm or for peace to take place? You're overwhelmed. How do you solve that? You and I could wrestle through a list of things. And David says, oh no, it's just one thing. One thing do I ask. And what does he ask for? Well, he asks for the dwelling in the house of the Lord, the presence of God. He goes to the place in which God has already said, I'll be. David, when you need me, I will always be here. You never have to wonder. You never have to question. I will be here. He's made that promise known to him. He's revealed himself in such ways. And that's obvious. You, you already know that. You know your Old Testament well. You, you know that God has promised to be in his house, in the temple, in the tent, in the tabernacle. David is using different terms because he's not saying, I want to be a temple servant. He's not asking for a new job. He's not saying, you know, the kingship, it's, it's really not all what it's cracked up to be. I'd like to be just one of the servants. He's saying, I want to be in the presence of God, no matter where, no matter how. I just need to find myself before the throne of God. What a powerful thought. He goes to where God said he would be. Is that how you and I view the Lord's presence? We talked last week about the Lord's presence. He because of Jesus, the ascension of Christ, and the condescension, as you might say, of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Spirit into his people. He lives in you if you are a believer in Christ. And yet there's something still so special about church. There's still something so unique about the worship of God with the people of God. Uh, Boyce, he 
makes a comment about it. He says, there's something to be experienced of God in the church that is not quite so easy to experience elsewhere. I'm not suggesting to you that you cannot worship or meet with God outside of this place. But isn't it true that when you come in here, there's something unique to experience God in this place that you cannot do elsewhere. You cannot duplicate the worship of God like the corporate worship that takes place on the Lord's day. What is David saying? I want want just one thing. I want to be in the house of the Lord. And he begins with such confidence, doesn't he? He knows who his God is. He knows where to find him. And then he says in verse six, and now, after I have an understanding of who my God is, where he is, how I can meet with him, it gives me understanding of how to view things. Remember we said how you understand God, what you believe about God, it shapes everything. It might not change everything in your life, i.e., it doesn't mean all of your trials and tribulations are gonna go away. It doesn't mean there isn't struggle to be had. That's not the scriptural teaching of what it means to be a Christian. But it does offer to you a perspective as to how to view trial, how to view tribulation. And you can have confidence in it. You can have understanding because you have a place in which you can take them. You can take it to the Lord. How do you know that that is David's understanding? Because when you read verses one through six, do you know what David is doing? He's speaking about God. But when you get to verse seven, there's a dramatic shift. He speaks to God. Things have been good. I'm full of assurance, but now that chaos is on my doorstep, this assurance is gonna have to be put to application. Lord, I need you. And he begins to pray. He begins to speak to the Lord. He doesn't lose focus because he knows where to find God. He knows who it is that he's after, where to find him. And what does he say? I want your face. I want your presence. I want your entire attention. And he's crying out because he recognizes if God were to withdraw, he has no hope. Isn't that what he's saying in verse nine? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. You're my salvation. If you leave, if you go, where would I go? And so he recognizes, Lord, there's a crisis of faith here, and I need you. He uses verse 10. That that might not be a shocker to you and I. It's quite unfortunate that it doesn't overwhelm us with surprise. But he says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This happens all too often, doesn't it? We live in a world that many grow up in single-parent homes. Kids not knowing who their real mom or real dad is, or they've been divorced, or a number of circumstances. That is not David's cultural context. They didn't understand divorce like we do. They didn't understand out-of-wedlock children like we do. And so when he uses this, he's giving you a very clear picture. When my security, that is my parents, when they forsake me, where am I going to go? 
The answer he offers is the Lord will take him in. When seemingly everything in this world forsakes you, God doesn't. He never forsakes his people. And so he prays, Lord, I need a home and you are my home. I need a refuge and you are my refuge. Teach me your way, O Lord. Protect me. I need you to guide me. I need your protection. He doesn't just understand that God is his security. He knows where to find God for that security. But the great question that you and I want to ask is then how do we get it? How do we have such security? It's those beautiful verses that you read at the very end in verses 13 and 14. What does David say? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. When David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, he's not thinking about heaven. He's not thinking about the afterlife. He's not thinking about some way down the road day in which Christ will return. That's not the Hebrew there. What he is understanding is there is a day in the calendar of my life in which I will see the goodness of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Do you ever get frustrated when it's been a really hard week and someone wants to tell you, I'm sorry, it won't be that way in heaven. That's true, but how does that help me now? Help me understand what do I do now? And what David is saying to you in a week of bad news, this is the good news. This is good news that the goodness of the Lord is still here, is still present. When there's violence and tragedies all throughout the world, this becomes the good news, that he is still here. You've been scorned for for standing firm for Christ, whether your family, your work, your neighborhood. You took a stand for Christ and you were picked on, you were made fun of, perhaps even at school. This becomes the good news. God is good, and he is still here. He is still near. The fact that you can trust in his goodness and it has an effect on your life, that's how we get the security. It's not hoping only for heaven. It's enjoying heaven now with the Lord. That's why he said, I have come to give you life and life to the full. You can have the goodness of God today. David knows this. Perhaps he's even thinking about Saul. Do you remember that story? And well, it's a few chapters actually of a story in 1 Samuel. Samuel's telling Saul, I want you to go and I want you to wait on me. I want you to give it seven days. I'll come. And then together we will. Worship. It's the period of the judges ending, and Saul's about to be anointed king. And and you know something of Saul, right? He goes into battle, he whoops the Philistines, and everyone needs to know about it. Philistines hear about it. They decide to get a little bit of a bigger army this time. The first time it was just a few thousand. Now we have thirty thousand. And Saul's a little bit nervous. What's going to happen? Samuel told me seven days. 
and God will be here. Samuel will be here, and this will work out. The people of God begin to get a little afraid. That's a little bit more than the last time we took them on. What do we do? What does Saul do? Well, he doesn't wait, does he? This is what we read in 1 Samuel 13. He, that is, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince. He got scared. He didn't want to wait on the Lord. He was uncertain, is God truly going to be my deliverer? And so he took the threats of the people to be a greater value than the triumphs of his God. Is this what David is considering? I don't know. But perhaps that's why he says, wait and wait for the Lord. Don't just sit there passively. It doesn't mean sit still. You go about what it means to be a faithful believer. You meet with God in his word. You worship God with his people. You pray and you seek what it means to reach those who do not know Christ. You're faithful in your family and in your workplace, but you wait on the Lord. There is a moment in which he will come and he will provide and he will be your deliverer, but it's in his time and not our own. That's why waiting is so hard, isn't it? Because I want it now. Did you hear what Saul said? He didn't come. Seven days, the time appointed. And so I just went on ahead. And doesn't this happen to us? And as soon as he started his offering, who does he see? Samuel. There's the Lord. The Lord is never late. He comes at the perfect time every single time. David will later say in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. That's the question that we have to ask. Do you trust God? Is he in fact your security? Do you go to where he said he would be found? And do you trust him? Do you wait on him? That's the beauty of Christ, isn't it? He is the security. There's a security that he offers in the forgiveness of sins. But that's not the greatest security. He doesn't just say, that's all I'm going to do. 
it's almost permission to play. Once you have your sins forgiven, the world of enjoyment is open to you in the gospel. And he says, come, come to me and I will give you rest. I will carry your burdens. I will live the life that you can't live. I will die the death that you deserve. And I will give you the life that you have so longed for. Isn't that what he tells his disciples in his prayer? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I hope in a world that offers so many illusions to security, that you can look upon the Lord and say, God is my security, in whom I trust. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, how we are thankful that time is not in our hands. It is in your hands. And yet you have given to us an understanding of how to appreciate and live in time. That we need not worry about tomorrow for who could add a day to their life. You have told us not to be anxious. You have told us not to be afraid because you have numbered the hairs on our head. There is no greater security that one can have than you, for you are our light, our deliverer, our stronghold. May we as your people find such security in you and therefore come to you, not run from you, but come to you. May we be, even as David says, wait, wait for the Lord. There is a day in our life. I have believed in it, that the goodness of God will shine forth. And that's what we see before us this evening with the table, the goodness of the Lord. In perfect timing, we have security. And so as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, O Lord, may that be said of us. Our security is found only in Christ alone. Amen.